My job as a futurist, to be clear, is really just to help design teams, because Teague is a design consultancy fundamentally, to help design teams and our clients anticipate both near-term and far-term changes. So basically what's what's going to happen in the next five years, but also what's going to happen in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. Of course, it gets much more difficult to anticipate those changes the farther the timeline moves down um, and it gets into some science fiction territory in a hurry. Welcome to the Wonder Podcast. This is your host, CCB, with another episode of enlightenment and inspiration, I'm going to say. Our guest today is going to tell us stories and um, I think expand our minds, but I'm not 100% sure. So I want to welcome Devin Liddell from Teague in Seattle, Washington. Devin, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. This this is very exciting. And... um, I would love for you to explain who you are and how you became what you are today. So I am a, I'm the principal futurist for Teague. Um, That title sometimes uh, surprises people that there are professional futurists out there, but there for sure are many, many professional futurists out there. My job as a futurist, to be clear, is really just to help design teams, because Teague is a design consultancy fundamentally, to help design teams and our clients anticipate both near-term and far-term changes. So basically what's what's going to happen in the next five years, but also what's going to happen in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. Of course, it gets much more difficult to anticipate those changes the farther the timeline moves down um, and it gets into some science fiction territory in a hurry. So there's always that challenge. And, and I think in some ways, the other way to, uh, from the outside, I'd like to say this from the beginning, to think about when you think about foresight or future studies or whatever we want to call it, it's actually in some ways, it's less about predicting the future. And it's more about actually sort of understanding what are the forces that will sh- that will likely shape the future and then understanding that, knowing that, what's the future that we actually want? What's the preferred future that we actually want to set about designing? So I tend to sort of want to, f- to shift things into sort of thinking about the future through the lens of a design challenge, not through the lens of let me predict specifically what will happen. I can We can do a lot of heavy lifting in terms of understanding the forces that are likely or, or going to probably impact the future. And then the task then becomes, what's the future that we want? Um, sometimes I, and the reason I mention that is that sometimes people tend to fixate on the, uh, the predictive uh, nature of the future. Well, okay, exactly. so that's just gonna make me ask that question. Um, what do you go to school for when futurist is your job title? Well, that's a great question. A lot of futurists who are working presently um, are self-taught in, in any number of ways or, you know, however they've gone about uh, becoming a futurist. There are, that said, that said, there are now actually a number of academic programs. There's There's been a long-standing uh, academic program at the University of Houston, um, been around for many decades. There's a pr- program at the University of Hawaii and Manoa. Um, so increasingly, there are a number of academic programs for people who want to either study foresight as an undergrad or as a graduate degree. So those, those programs definitely exist. And, and at the same time, as I mentioned, a lot of futurists working presently are uh, self-taught. So taking advantage of the, uh, the context and the experience that you have and building that into something to support moving forward. 
Exactly. And, and, you know, to back up a little bit about my background, my background is in design. And of course, design is a good proxy for the future. I mean, one the, and the reason I say that is because when we're designing something, whether that's designing an airframe for Boeing, which is our largest client, or designing uh, a new piece of electronics um, for any number of uh, OEMs, the task in front of us is not is not necessarily about design this thing that's going to going to be going to service tomorrow. Um, you know, meaning like the very next day. There's always a challenge around around designing something that will sort of meet the people where they are when it's introduced. And when you think about the challenges of designing an airframe, an, a new airplane. Designing a new airplane takes about 10 years, believe it or not, to do so. Um, to design a new car in comparison, it's about five years. For both of those, the challenge then, of course, is to imagine um, and anticipate, less imagine and more anticipate, what is the world going to look like five years from now? What will the world look like in 10 years from now? And how do we go about creating the airplane or car or electronics or, or service, whatever it is, how do we go about designing that thing that will live its life in that moment and it's in the future? So, so the reason I bring that up is because design is a good proxy for understanding the future. Um, and that's understandably probably why uh, a lot of designer firms have futurists like myself. Um, and that's certainly the way that, that, that I became a futurist is being steeped in the process of design. So there's this big, huge, uh, emphasis on collaboration that I'm hearing as you're talking, not only in working with your uh, your own co you know colleagues, but also with your clients, your customers, um, to to grab that kind of information and and that they have uh, and infuse it with the thoughts and the design um, kind of expertise that Teague will bring. Um, so, go ahead. No, I know. I was say absolutely, and I, and I think you know, in some ways, like the I would I would all kind of rail against generalism in some regards when it comes to foresight or the understanding of, of what the future looks like. I, I I'd argue that there actually does need to be some some specialization involved. And to your point about collaboration, there's a there's a limit. There's a, a finite capacity for me to understand inputs into the future. So, you know, whether I'm thinking about, you know, social inputs, like what, what are the social forces that are, gonna, that are gonna shape the future, but there's also what are the technological forces that are gonna shape the future? What are the political, what are the economic? It gets, it gets into facets in a hurry that require, exactly what you're mentioning, require inputs from, from people who have, who are, have a, a deep understanding of, of that particular subject. So a good example of that for me is that I tend to be a very good collaborator for highly technical folks because they have a, a very, very clear understanding of, of where tech, certain technologies are headed. And what I can then bring to that collaboration is, oh, I understand, I understand that technology. Now let me actually uh, collaborate with you to understand what are the use cases for that technology knowing what we know about what maybe society might, for example, look like uh, five years from now. So yeah. I, as a great point that you bring up in terms of like how actually you kind of like marry inputs and those inputs are, in my opinion, fundamentally human at some point. Um, wow, you're just making me think about, I uh, I heard a, a, an economist talking last night, uh, Dr. Dumbisi Moyo, who is World Economic Forum and she's on the board of, uh, Chevron and 3M, but just talking about the impacts of the economy and, and then her, her like go-to, which I thought was really amazing was, um, from an investment perspective, emerging technologies and China. 
Okay, so I'm going to have to learn Chinese, but also, um, you know, get more tuned into the emerging technologies, which brings us to any number of the projects that you have you have been working on. And um, the first one that I wanted to ask you about, because it starts to broaden, she also was talking about the impact that it can have on education and the deficit that we have currently and the um, what emerging technologies might be able to do to, you know, kind of uh, support that. Um, so the... The article that you wrote on um, aging and autonomous mobility, if you will, um, I loved how many different angles you include in, in your kind of your musings. <laughs> so so talk about, if you will, um, uh, uh, the aging and, and autonomous um, vehicles is kind of often one area, but to get you into that mobility conversation, the... Um, what's happening? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, most of my work is, is some is, is, is focused on some aspect of mobility and, and that can be, you know, take a lot of different shapes. Um, it probably goes back. I'll use, I'll overuse the word proxy, but it goes back to what I was saying about, about, you know, uh, what's a proxy for understanding the future and mobility is a good proxy for understanding the future. Um, how we move around, like, how we move around and why we move around are good answering those questions are good ways of revealing our very human motivations and so when you bring up uh the piece i wrote around aging in the age of autonomy um one of the reasons i i wrote that piece was that we've spent a lot of a lot of time and this this happens with emergent technologies I'd say even in, in general, is that we tend to think about kind of the, the whiz-bang features of new technologies and how that will change life for mainstream audiences. We, we don't arguably spend enough time thinking about how these new technologies might subvert or enhance or, or transform uh, the everyday living experiences for marginalized communities, for communities that we're not thinking about as much. And one of the reasons I was interested in talking about autonomy through the lens of aging is that when people age, one of the things that actually happens to them typically in our current scenario is that they lose uh, the capacity to, to move around on their own. So they might lose their driver's license. That might be because they um, have eyesight trouble or uh, any number of, of age-related reasons that, that impact their mobility. But that, that change is is often very, very transformative in terms of how they experience life. And it can be very alienating, it can be very isolating. And so when you think about the promises of autonomy, one of the, yes, it's great, it's important to think about, you know, what an autonomous vehicle will look like through the lens of like, you know, how we'll work and watch movies in, in it, great. And, and there's plenty of people who are focused on that. I would prefer to focus on other things, including what this what these technologies might mean for older older citizens and what it does mean is that it means that they actually can live very different lives than they they would otherwise live if they if right now if they lose when they lose mobility and it gets into some fantastical scenarios which which you read about uh along the lines of like hey actually uh when it comes to uh our our snowbird populations in the u.s people who move from the northeast to the southeast you know in a seasonal pattern maybe actually we'll need 
all new types of vehicles where people actually move in their vehicles. They don't live in homes anymore at all. They actually just move in vehicles that autonomously relocate from the Northeast to the Southeast in seasonal ways. Um, we're we're uh, right now in December, of course, and, and uh, in, the, in the thrust of the holidays. And so people are probably wrestling with the, the arrival of in-laws and so forth. Might be that in the future, your in-laws actually just arrive in an autonomous vehicle that, that is more akin to kind of like a mobile apartment and they just are happy as clams right out in front of your home and they're not taking a bedroom. <laughs> well, and then you, you, then you wired it as a, you know, as a smart home. And so it can be connected for telemedicine and telehealth and, and be absolutely understanding, you know, what's transpiring in your day-to-day uh, -day existence that you may not even. So there, you, you, you dove into all of these different areas, which are kind of mind boggling, but they're just not, they're not like so far away. They're just like that. Yeah. That next step of, Oh, that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that also sometimes comes up when it comes to foresight or uh, future studies is that there are often forks in the road when it comes to either utopian or dystopian outcomes. Um, and that goes back, that tracks back to what I was mentioning earlier about kind of like isolating what is the preferred future? What's the, what is the utopia we want compared to the dystopia that we don't want? Um, and when we think about new technologies like like autonomous vehicles, there are use cases that actually aren't that aren't that fantastic, right? I mean, one of them actually goes uh, it goes against what I was just mentioning around kind of the the prospect of aging in the age of autonomy is that autonomous vehicles could actually have an isolating effect. You know, we just we just move around on our own in these sort of you know one or two person robot taxi pods, and we don't actually have experiences of community that we currently have in other modalities. Um, so knowing that, knowing like, hey, this, this is a potential dystopia is important as well because it helps us actually head it off. It helps us design away from it. Um, and that's what I was mentioning in terms of preferred futures. Okay, so you're in the um, mobility uh, conversation, and there, in reading some of your writing, there are words that are not in the common lexicon at this moment in time. Um, and I wanted to um, have you talk about vertiports as the beginning of that journey. Yes, awesome. Yeah, vertiports. Yeah, and you know, this is what vertiports. To 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 back up here a second, or to be clear about it, vertiports are the piece of infrastructure that we will use to uh, to deploy. It'll, this is a, another technical term, but uh, we'll figure. And I'll, I'm gonna I'll come back to this in a second. What's currently called electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. These are, that's a fancy acronym, sometimes it's called eVTOL, uh, is an is a overly technical term for what we would colloquially call flying cars. Um, that's, that's what those are. And flying cars is, of course, a, a form of mobility that we've been pining for for 50 or 60 years. So they're, they're actually a popular science um, and popular mechanics uh, magazine covers from the 50s that show people moving around in, in uh, speculative futures of what, what, what it would look like to have flying cars. This is the Jetsons, of course, right? I mean, the Jetsons had flying cars. Um, so we've been wanting flying cars for quite a while. Um, the good news or the bad news, depending on, on what you think about flying cars, is that we will have flying cars in short order. In the next you know, two to five years, there will be cities on Earth that have some sort of service of electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. Um, and to your question about vertiports, 
further ports of the buildings that those those vehicles will will fly in and out of. And it's going to be a very different experience than than what we currently associate with the kind of flying experience through through contemporary airports. Um, partly because they're going to be integrated into urban fabrics. So this is going to be a, a vertiport is much more likely to be in a downtown location uh, next to your office building than it is going to be like, you know, closer to a, an airport, which is often farther away. Um, we also, weirdly enough, will will uh, have to know what people weigh when people get on board them. <laughs> Um, the reason we need to know what people weigh when they get on board uh, these vehicles is that they're currently projected to be kind of somewhere between two and six passengers um, per vehicle, and uh, so they have to be load optimized. So we need to know what people weigh so that so we can seat them appropriately uh, for the the capabilities of the vehicle. I mentioned that because that requirement actually influences how vertiports will operate. And one of the one of the things that I speculate will happen is that we will build into vertiports the ability to weigh people um, without them having to step on a scale. So this will not be a process of them checking into a flight uh, for a, or an eVTOL uh, service and then having to step on a scale. Instead, we will move through these vertiport uh, buildings and computer vision and embedded scales and other technologies will actually arrive at a uh, an acceptable estimate of our weight just as we move through the space. Um, the reason I mention that is because that actually could influence actually how airports of the future even work too. That as we think about how we move through security, um, our, current, our current scenario of kind of queuing up for every single aspect of the travel experience. And you know, if you think about going to an airport right now, it's essentially a series of queues, a series of lines. Um, when we think about what, what the experience of that type of building will be like in the future, there are a lot of technologies that are already available to us that will transform that experience away from a series of queues and more towards a, um, a much more uh, beneficial kind of just walk from one place to another mm -hmm. into the vehicle, so. So, um, so there's this, these two competing, or actually there's probably multiple competing thoughts in my head, but there's, there's the human element of this, like how are people going to uh, absorb and, um, you know, uh, acclimate to these different types of activities. There's the, um, gosh, there's the security aspect, which I know I've read things about, you know, already looking at, um, kind of through sensors and things, you know, and, and facial recognition, et cetera, et cetera, which also gets, you know, kind of impacts back to the, the human experience. But then there's also place. And you've referenced this a couple of times uh, that uh, place changes more slowly than technology, obviously. Mm -hmm. So, so how does, how do you think, you know, how are you looking at how people are going to feel, you know, in these experiences, but then also how are the places going to support them? It's a great question around place. And, and it's actually probably one of the things that gets under sort of underlooked. I mean, like you're right, we tend to like over index on on kind of, the, as I said, like kind of the whiz bangness of the tech itself and not think about how our spaces will have to account for those uh, technologies. And I mean, one of the ones that I'd mentioned right off the bat, especially on the topic of vertiports, is that right now, 
our experience of aviation is, is actually a bit estranged from the city. So when we think about the future of the city, it's actually probably very different from what we have right now, where if you're going to have a, an experience of flying, if you're going to get on board a 737, for example, and fly from one city to the next, you typically, at least in North America, you typically have to actually transit to an airport that is often very far away from the city center. Vertiports actually will change, will challenge that and subvert that, that kind of way of, of moving about and bring aviation closer to the city center. And when you think about things that that actually kind of like what that what that does for the fabric of the city, um, it gets into some really interesting territory. Um, one of the ways that, that I have often explained it is that we have done a lot of work to kind of like shift human mobility away from kind of hubs and spokes where we would go like and a hub and spoke would be like if we go to a a subway station or you know grand central for example and then we transit and then we we transfer to another train and go go to where we're going most mobility has shifted to point to point so you know, we've done that in air, in air travel and we've done that in vehicles, you know, and Uber and Lyft is a classic example of like it picks you up in front of your house and takes you wherever you're going. And that shift from point to point uh, has been pretty pervasive across all sorts of ways of moving about in the air and on the ground. And when we think about place and vertiports and the future of, of smart cities, the future that's in front of us is likely one uh, where we're much more likely to kind of like what I would describe as kind of hop and skip across places. Um, so we might use, for example, a series of vertiports. Um, if I'm headed to, say, for example, uh, San, Fr San Francisco from Seattle, the present way I would get there, of course, is that I get on a, a narrow body aircraft and fly 90 minutes and arrive at an airport and then I'd transit to downtown. The future of, of hopping and skipping might mean that it's, I'm more likely to get on a series of flying car experiences and kind of hop and skip along the West Coast to get to get to San Francisco. And the reason, by the way, I would do that, and this is something that I want to make sure we, we talk about, is that the other, the other great pressure, the big pressure that's sort of upon us is how do we make mobility carbon neutral? How do we make it carbon free? And that's going to, that's what's going to influence um, transportation in, in a big way. But to your, back to your question around like about vertiports and, and placemaking, when we introduce these types of infrastructure into cities, they change the shape of cities, right? They change how we experience these cities and vertiports are no different in that regard. So, you know, how we actually end up using flying cars to move from one place to another have really, really fantastic, you know, positive use cases, like I mentioned earlier, you know, utopian use cases, and they have some dystopian use cases. A dystopian use case, really, really quickly to mention it, is that rich people fly around up above and poor people toil below in, 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 on, on the ground. And we need to figure out ways to bring vertiports into cities that are, that are equitable and accessible for all sorts of people to move around and get to where they're going and, and where they want to go and why they want to go. Um, that might take me down a tangent about asking, you know, legislatively, you know, who owns any of this kind of, uh, um, gosh, but I'm not going to go there. Um, cause I actually want to go to, uh, I want to go to back to place and say, um, okay, now let's bring in the metaverse and talk about what, what does place mean when, you know, things become non-physical, <laughs> It is, it is a gnarly question, isn't it? 
Um, yes. You know, and for listeners who are not familiar with the metaverse, the, the prospect of the metaverse is essentially a melding of the physical and the digital realms into what I would describe as kind of like a new experience of the internet. And and there won't be, by the way, a sort of pre-metaverse and a post-metaverse kind of world, you know, or before and an after kind of moment. We're already kind of like getting into blurry experiences of what the metaverse is. Anyone, and it's almost probably almost everyone who has experienced a Zoom call or a Teams call or so forth has has started to sort of inch into the metaverse, if you will, because you are melding the physical and the digital, you know, like we're, we're, you're in a meeting room, even though it's not actually a real room, right? You're in a digital meeting room um, and you're meeting with colleagues that way. If you If you think about the prospect of adding 10, 20 years to technologies like Zoom and Teams and so forth, you start to get into some really interesting territory that challenge why we would move around at all, actually, to be really blunt about it. Um, you know, the prospect of business travel, in my opinion, is actually fairly imperiled because when you think about pre-COVID, how we actually moved about for the purposes of business travel, in hindsight, looks pretty inefficient and borderline kind of dumb, right? Like, and, and wasteful, right? Wasteful from a carbon standpoint, wasteful from a time standpoint. Does it make sense to fly from Seattle to San Francisco for the purposes of a, of a 90 minute in-person meeting and spend 12 hours to do it? No, it actually doesn't make much sense to do that. The metaverse will further subvert that in the sense that being able to meet with someone in a digital room that actually approximates in a lot of ways, a physical room will further challenge why we move around at, at all. This, of course, goes right back to your question around place because it challenges how we've oriented our cities around our activities. Even if you think about the, the, current, the, the current kind of structure of the city, if you will, is mostly oriented around people transiting from outside the city core into the city core for the purposes of working, right? And the metaverse is actually gonna challenge and COVID frankly has already done so already, right? We're already seeing challenges to like, what is the shape of the city? And it's a, and, and this may be unsatisfying to listeners but it is a big unanswered question as to what is, what does place mean in the future? And, and what will, our, what will our, our real life 3D uh, spaces uh, mean to us and how, and what will they do for us and where even where will they be right I mean we've already seen things like people relocating to to smaller communities away from corporate headquarters um, because they can because they because the current the current uh, even the current crop of technologies allows them to do so again add 10 20 years to that and you end up with a really really serious challenge to what it, what a what a city even is. So uh, lots of really juicy unanswered questions around what that looks like. Gosh, yes, indeed. The, um, I, it brings me back to the, you know, kind of the beginning bit of the conversation, really, that we didn't talk about, which is um, how all of this is going to impact education and how are how are young you know, minds going to I know they're already living in it. But what are we thinking you know, is going to happen um, that will support this or, you know, or, or create obstacles. I don't know. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic topic, of course. And, and it goes, it goes back to place as well. I mean, it's a common thread. I mean, if you think about even like what we've seen occur during the pandemic, um, one of the things, of course, it comes right up, comes up right away when it comes to uh, education is equitable access. So how do we actually create, create equitable access? You, we've heard, we've all heard narratives during the pandemic of things like people who don't have internet access or fast internet access at home driving to their local libraries and you know being parked out front so they can actually you know get access to wi-fi simply for the purposes of, of remote learning right um so there's all kinds of like equitability issues in my opinion um i think the when we to dwell on higher education for a second and that's not necessarily my my specialty you know we have sort of paradoxical sort of motivations around some of these things. Like, you know, one of the narratives I remember hearing during the pandemic was that uh, someone from abroad had enrolled at Cambridge and uh, and and then opted to unenroll until the pandemic was over, partly because the place, the place of Cambridge was was deemed so intrinsically integrated, you know, so integrated into the actual experience of Cambridge, and you could not parse apart Cambridge from Cambridge, the place, right? And so a digital a digital replica, if you if you will, of of that of that place is not acceptable. Um, there are other scenarios where maybe that isn't the case, right? And and you and you'd be perfectly happy to attend a university or a college um, from a from an online or a remote standpoint. Um, and as per my point earlier, add 10, 10 to 20 years to some of these technologies and being in a in a hall, you know, without actually being in the hall may not actually be as much of an issue uh, as we think of currently. So probably lots of unanswered questions in that space as well. Well, there's so much about, uh, there's so much about um, increased access to lots of, of uh, elements of our, of our living, of our everyday experience um, and, and broader access. But I, there's this constant, and I know people, you know, ask me that question all the time. Well, yeah, but what, you know, what's it going to feel like? What are people, how are people going to feel and what are those relationships going to be like? Because we don't, we, we today don't know how to, you know, um, kind of conceive of what those relationships might be. The old way of, you know, you couldn't have um, online meetings until you actually knew somebody and then you, you could, you know, manage through that. But now it's like, I don't know half the people that I've met online, you know, and that I have meetings with. Um, and I, you know, you become more and more accustomed to it, but, but there's also that, um, I'm just writing an article about, um, the K through 12 experience and why there's so much support to mental health and all of these things, because the, um, the learning continuity has suffered and the social development has suffered. So, you know, how are we going to manage the balance of, it's just fascinating. Oh, totally. I mean, you know, that's, that's an, uh, another thing that comes up, I think frequently with just technology in general is that, that is that they, they sometimes pose questions to us about what, what it means to be human and what, and what we want from the human experience. I mean, we haven't talked about artificial intelligence yet, but that's going to be another topic, of course, that, that poses very deep questions about, about how we interact with other humans, what are expectations for, for that? Um, what is, and, and again, what does it even mean to be human? Um, going back to the K through 12 example you brought up, the internet in, in of course, very broad brushstrokes is, you could argue is what one of the things it does exceptionally well is that it uncouples 
place from activity. You know, that's why that's why we we have online shopping, right? That's why we have online education. Um, but the things you brought up too, in terms of like socialization and those those harder to pin down subjects, uh, you know, those are important too. So they they pose these questions about like if we're not going to get those those benefits from here, how do we get them? Or to your to your point, or do we actually know? We know now that we have to get them in person. We have to get this experience through an actual kindergarten, for example. Um, those are again. Those are like very, really, really, really compelling unanswered questions around around <laughs> that that pose like some really fascinating questions. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm now in your space too, where it's like I, I'm confronted by all of these uh, <laughs> unanswered questions myself, and it's like, well, yeah, there's a lot to there's a lot to ruminate on there. There sure is. Okay, so we're kind of winding up our time, which is really unfortunate because I could just sit here and listen to you for a really long time. But um, the question that I would ask you to kind of share with us as a you know parting gift is, um, how do you see the integration of uh, of your expertise, your type of expertise, going across uh, greater industries? Because you, I feel like we're on the West Coast. And we have, there's a great deal of technology and there's a great deal of um, activity that, um, that, that makes it much more uh, accessible. But knowing there are other industries and there are other parts of our country that are just not moving at the same pace. What do you, how do you see that? Yeah, it's, it's in some ways it's too bad that that there are that it's not a that it's not a, a skill sort of more hardwired into organizations. You know, understanding you know understanding near term and far term disruptions or changes or, or transformations, whatever we want to call them, should actually be seen, in my opinion, and of course I'm deeply biased, um, should actually be seen as kind of like the basics of strategic hygiene, right? I mean, this is. This is like this should be considered part and parcel to being a successful, competent, thriving organization um, in in any category. You know, it doesn't matter what kind of industry that's in. And the reason I say that, of course, is that that you know we're super familiar with all sorts of industrial stalwarts that seemingly kind of disappear, right? I mean, you know, it, would you would anyone who was in a Sears, you know, during in the 50s pre have predicted that that Sears would be gone, right? Um, any, would anyone in line to get some licorice after picking out a movie at their local blockbuster have predicted that that they would no longer be around? So we know, of course, that 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 prospect, that prospect that the the world may not need us <laughs> in the future in the same way that it needs us today, should always be actually front of mind for for all of us. Again, in any in any kind of category that we're working. So, and there are of course ways to do that, right? I mean, so much of this this you don't need to have a professional futurist necessarily on staff um, to to do this. These I, I like your word earlier, like these musings around what the future looks like. And one of the things that I tended to spend quite a bit of energy on as a futurist is working with design teams to create what we describe as artifacts from the future. What they are is nothing more than actually just sort of like essentially a photograph of what the future looks like, you know, a visual representation, not a not a bullet point list. Not a not a PowerPoint around what kind of future or forces might shape our future. Um, an actual sort of photorealistic artifact of what the future looks like five years from now, ten years from now, whatever the time frame is. 
When we look at those types of artifacts, that's when we're confronted with, okay, if that's what the world looks like, what do we need to do to make sure that we meet the needs of the people living in that world, right? And there's a there's a humility, by the way, involved in that, um, and a lack of humility <laughs> to mention, by the way, if you don't think the world will change. So, so much of, of what I what I've just mentioned is just about like how do we bring foresight, how do we bring an understanding of the future into kind of like a, an everyday conversation around what the future or you know what we'll need to do um, from just a basic strategic hygiene standpoint. Um, and the reason I'm dwelling on it, and I'll stop here in a second, but the reason I bring this, bring this up is I would argue that a lot of organizations get stuck in the trap of thinking that the world will always need them the way they need them right now. And, and, so, and the reason it's such a trap is that actually culturally, from an, even just like a cultural standpoint, suggesting otherwise can almost feel verboten. Like, oh my goodness, how could you how could that is our number one selling product? How dare you suggest that it may not be the breadwinner for us, you know, five years from now? But it's true. I mean, you know, it's actually it's not, it's 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 in all likelihood like a distinct probability. <laughs> um, and yet we get stuck in that trap of of uh, of you know not wanting to to think about that not being true. Well, that whole nature of you know, very focused, very tunnel kind of vision as compared to scenario thinking. And where did that, you know, where did that start and where does it stop? And, you know, and, and who is rewarded for it? And you just see, yeah, you see a lot of that going on. Anyway, I'm going to say thank you very much, Devin Levendell. Um, I know you are a prolific writer on, uh, and you can be found on Fast Company. Are there other locations that we should think about looking for some of your thoughts? Certainly, most of my writing is currently for uh, Fast Company, um, so definitely check out Fast Company for sure. I've also done writing uh, for uh, for other publications as well. So um, if you go to teague.com, T-E-A-G-U-E.com, you can definitely find links to, to those as well. Excellent. Thank you so much, Devin. Um, the people in the Wonder Podcast world are going to be delighted to hear about you and, um, and what you're up to. And the Wonder Podcast is available on all those podcast streaming services, so you can find it anywhere. And I'm going to say thank you, and we will talk again soon.